You're listening to Episode 7 of Fail Hard, a by-design podcast that explores the relationship between fear, failure, and creativity, sponsored by Adobe. I'm your host, Will Hall. Before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give a tremendous thank you to all of you for listening. I have been so incredibly humbled and overwhelmed by the amount of support uh, that you guys have, have shown to me and, and to the show. And I mean, from the words of encouragement, uh, you know, to the creative notes about how I can do my job better, which believe me, I need those and keep those coming, um, you know, suggestions to make this thing better. And anyway, I just can't thank you enough. So th- thank you, thank you, and thank you. And for those of you who haven't yet, uh, if you could do me a solid and go ahead and hit subscribe now, it's one of those things that has really helped the show grow thus far. And, uh, you know, I would super appreciate it. So again, thank you to everyone for all the support. Also, we've received a ton of emails with questions and suggestions that we're going to get to in a future episode. But um, Martin, our show's engineer, he's been my main partner through all this. Martin, actually go ahead and say howdy. Hey, how's it going? So Martin had this great idea that we should set up a voicemail so we can get audience questions in audio format instead of me just reading emails. And we're certainly going to look into that in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, if you have a question, just record it via your phone's voice memo app and email the file to us, hello at willhall.co. We'll be including those in a future episode So, I can't wait to hear from you. For a lot of people like myself that grew up in the late 90s and early 2000s, there were few forces more powerful than that of punk rock. Like a lot of kids during that time, I started a band along with my friends Daniel and Joey and You know, look, what we lacked in musical talent, we more than made up for in our conviction, our enthusiasm, our commitment. You know, every single day after school, we would go and practice in Daniel's attic, and we were just trying to get better, just hanging out. But ultimately, we were trying to make something, even though that something wasn't, you know, particularly great. I mean, yeah, if you want to talk about failure, uh, half the songs, if not all of the songs that we made during that era, I mean, they are pretty much unlistenable now, if I'm being honest. Uh, That being said, you know, we did keep at it. And eventually we got signed to the small label out in New York City and we hit the road in my mom's minivan. That's totally true. The caravan, we took out all the seats and rolled around in the back and we would hit the road for weeks at a time. And during that time, we got to play with some of my favorite bands uh, of all time. It was absolutely incredible. And, you know, all of that being said, uh, the thing that was so amazing about that entire world was that though music was the front door, you know, meaning it's what brought us together, the music paradoxically also kind of didn't matter. And what I mean by that is that it was so secondary to the friends that you made, you know, the community that you were able to be a part of. And, you know, everyone there had this underlying desire to make something, to make stuff. And it's just so easy to gloss over just how unique that is. And, you know, before punk rock, it never really occurred to me that I could completely create my own world, that I could start a label, 
I could publish a book. I could print posters and shirts. I could book an entire tour without anyone's help. And let me tell you, when you're 16, that is both a dangerous and a powerful idea. And, you know, I'm reminded of this clip of Steve Jobs, and I can't believe I'm about to talk about Steve Jobs and punk rock in the same sentence, but actually, let me play the clip for you real quick. Life can be much broader once you discover one simple fact, and that is everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can, you can build your own things that other people can use. And the minute that you understand that you can poke life and actually something will, you know, if you push in, something will pop out the other side, that you can, you can change it, you can mold it, um, that's maybe the most important thing. Once you learn that, you'll never be the same again. And that really is the lesson that I feel like I got from the world of punk rock. Later in that same clip, Steve said that it doesn't matter where or how you learn that lesson, you know, whether it be from punk rock or Silicon Valley, but just simply that when you do learn that lesson, it changes you. And as I look out now beyond the scope of my one little subgenre to the broader world of creativity and innovation in whatever form it may take, I realize more and more that this lesson, that's the one thing that we all have in common. That we all see the world not only as something that can be created, but it's something that we must create. That our ideas matter, and that we must get them out of our heads and off of our hard drives and out into the world. In some ways, I think the letters DIY, do it yourself, sums up this lesson perfectly. Because those three letters, they transcend whatever genre or discipline it is you call home. And you realize that the only genre that ever mattered in the first place was simply conviction. The kind of DIY punk rock ethic has just ever since, um, you know, I got into the music scene, that's just, you know, has been kind of the you know invisible foundation of what I've done. That's the voice of today's guest, Don Clark. Don runs an amazing design studio called Invisible Creature, along with his brother, Ryan Clark, out of their office in Seattle, Washington. When it comes to this lesson we've been talking about, that you can design your own life, so to speak, I think they embody that idea perhaps better than anybody. Not really asking for permission and just kind of, you know, doing things in terms of uh, the projects that we take on and, and the products that we release and trying to put passion first. Obviously, we all have mortgages now, but really trying to focus on, you know, I think if I pursue what I'm interested in, I think there's other people that are too, and that hopefully that will keep the machine rolling, whether it's clients or folks buying our products. So um, yeah, man, that, that's, that definitely is ingrained in our DNA. I love that you use the word passion to describe what it is that you do, because there's subjectivity in that, you know? I think over the past decade or so, so many designers have shifted away from the personal and more artful work to sort of in favor of pure functionality. And look, I love UX, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge fan of it. But there is so much more to design than simply flows and button states. And, you know, when I look at your work, I can feel the care that was put into it. 
And, you know, look, I guess that makes sense, right? I mean, you, your brother, and your friend Dimitri, who you later started a, a different agency with, didn't all three of you guys uh, move to Seattle together at the same time to work at a record label? Um, can you talk to me about that transition, how you, I guess, shifted from your passion for music to a career in design? Yeah, absolutely. No, that that's exactly what happened. We, at the time, I was a delivery, uh, I was a courier for DHL in Sacramento, and this is around 1999. And uh, a designer at Tooth & Nail, who was a friend of mine, um, our band was on uh, Tooth & Nail Records at the time, he had gotten a dot-com job as a design director, you know, and I was like, this is the beginning, this is the advent of the web, right? S specifically design on the web. And it was just, you know, hey, do you want to, you know, we have this opening, uh, you know, it's paying 40 grand a year. And at the time I was like $40,000 a year. Holy crap. Like it was big money for, for me. I was, you know, it, it was a big deal. And I'm like, well, shoot, I had always wanted to go to, you know, move to Seattle. My wife's from there, or I met my wife there, the labels there. Seattle has such an amazing design and music scene. And, um, you know, so it was kind of a no-brainer. So the reason we did move to Seattle was to actually, uh, you know, we got full-time design jobs. And when I say we, it was my friend, uh, Dimitri, who I ended up starting Asterisk with. And then my brother joined along as well. So I, I was newly married. Um, Dimitri had a girlfriend at the time. We all, all of us, all five of us packed up and moved to Seattle. And uh, that job lasted six months right before the, you know, the dot-com boom uh, basically was, it was on its way out. Then we got another kind of more techie design job that lasted about six months. So all said, we kind of moved from Sacramento with this dream and, and those job, that job only lasted a year. Man, that's tough. Uh, so, you know, what'd you do? Where'd you go from there? So we were kind of left with like, well, shoot, you know, what are we going to do now? And, and Dimitri and I just so focused on starting our own studio. We really wanted to make a go of it. And we kind of pitched this idea to tooth and nail. Hey, what if like we took X amount of, you know, uh, records each year and did the packaging and a website and kind of talked our way into our first, you know, um, contract. That was that's the quick story about how we kind of relocated. Man, in a way, that is such a familiar story because I can't tell you how many studios I know of that got their start because somebody got fired and they sort of failed forward in a sense. Uh, and you, you certainly seem to have landed on your feet there. You know, you've got this retainer, if you will, with tooth and nail. Um, can you take me through some of the first years of running your own studio? For five years straight, we were just doing music packaging. And the thing... Uh, the, the amazing thing about the, the tooth and nail um, contract was that, you know, we were working with bands that had a, a large following and, you know, um, we were given this opportunity to create these records for these bands that were getting huge at the time. You know, I, I often refer to this as like the MTV two generation, you know, a lot of these hardcore bands and punk bands were getting heavy rotation on MTV two with a huge viewership. And, you know, what were happening, what was happening is these bands were going on tour with other bands and then they were calling us because, Hey, I dug the record, you know, the artwork that, uh, those guys did, would you, you know, and so they would give us, you know, pass on our name. And so honestly, we were immersed in that entire scene and doing almost every band in that scene, which, you know, at the time, was super exciting. We had just started the company. We had no idea what we were doing. It was just like these, you know, early 20, you know, young 20 somethings, like just having the time of our life. But then 
you know, five years comes down the road, it's like, well, we, I, I feel like we've exhausted almost everything we can do in this scene. I mean, the stuff was starting to look very similar and then other people were doing things that looked like us. And we were also getting, the company was getting more like uh, larger uh, corporate web jobs like Nintendo and you know, different things like that. So I was going, well, you know, I don't want to be in meetings with Microsoft. I don't want, I want to just draw. I want to do packaging. I just had my first daughter. I wanted to start doing, uh, you know, illustration and, and just stuff that like made me excited. And, and, you know, I always consider myself as just, you know, an artist working in his studio and, and producing, uh, you know, whether it's illustrations or products or, or, or whatever, I didn't want to be in meetings and kind of run that kind of like agency lifestyle. Perhaps the only thing harder than starting a successful agency is leaving one. Believe me, I know for a fact how hard it is to get companies like this off the ground. And it takes real conviction to step out of that comfort zone, to move away from that known world of success and into this new world of the unknown. But, you know, with his growing passion for illustration and personal work, this is exactly what he decided to do. He, under very amicable terms, left and started his own new firm, Invisible Creature. And transitions like this, they always amaze me because this is when the lizard brain takes over. This is when it takes the center stage, it puts on a top hat and starts singing loudly that you are going to fail. What are you doing? Head back to safety. You know, and I was real nervous to go out and start something new when we had a lot of success doing records and we had like four Grammy nominations at that time. And I was like, I'm starting a new company. Like what? And, um, man, it, it like exploded. I, I had no idea. You know, obviously I had no idea. I, I was just so, um, like elated that people kind of like transitioned to that new studio with us. What, you know, when I say people, I mean like, you know, people who had been following our work and then also clients. Um, but that is when we kind of poured on the heavy, like illustration type stuff that we were showcasing. I mean, I look back on it now and it's terrible, but we were getting, you know, we started getting calls from target and things like that. Um, and the gig poster explosion had just, you know, kind of happened. And so, you know, we jumped into that and then, you know, lo and behold, art directors are buying those posters and then calling us to work on stuff for their companies it was like a perfect storm for us because we wanted to transition out of music and um, it just so happened that it worked, but it was, you know, it, all again, all those little pieces like fell into line for us. And I, I look back and I'm just like, I can't believe it. Like very, very thankful um, for where we were at the time and kind of those doors that got unlocked for us. And, you know, it's been really great seeing your studio succeed from afar over the past several years. And, you know, speaking of success, I can't wait to check out your new book, Face the Music, 20 Years of Album Art. I can't wait to get that copy. I know it's on pre-order now. Um, but when you look back at this sort of mountain of work, is there a project that sticks out as being particularly meaningful or formative to you in the studio? The, the seminal project in that era was the Foo Fighters album that we did in 2006, because up until then, 
we were doing Indian punk, you know, a lot of it too. We, we had never gotten calls from, well, actually we had done some major label stuff, but it wasn't like exciting. It wasn't like, it wasn't Foo Fighters, like one of the biggest bands on the planet, you know? And I had, you know, I was a massive Dave Grohl fan. I think every punk rock kid looks up to Dave Grohl and that was it bar none because we had gotten a call from the manager. She actually called me on my cell when I was at home right after work. You know, she's, introduced herself and said, Hey, we'd really love you to do the new uh, Foo Fighters album. And I thought it was a joke. I'm like, uh, you know, who is this? <laughs> it, there was no, um, you know, we didn't pitch for it. There wasn't anyone else up for it. We just got it. You know, her thing was like, well, there's one caveat. We need you to be down here uh, in four days and listen to the album with the band and talk with them about ideas. And I'm like, I was like, I felt like I was dreaming. And my, and my, my wife was like, what just happened? I was like, that was the manager of the Foo Fighters. And, you know, again, it was like, I felt like I had made it. And looking back, that that's all that I ever wanted to do, right? I mean, after something like Foo Fighters, I mean, I guess like there's Metallica and U2 on my list, but I was like, that was kind of it, you know? Um, so yeah, my brother and I flew down. This is actually before like smartphones, really. So <laughs> we have no, no, I think the iPhone came out in 07, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but anyways, we flew down there. And, um, Pat smear opened the door, you know, we go upstairs and like sit and she's like, and he, he was actually leaving and he's like, I think the band will be upstairs in a second. And we're just sitting there waiting for him. And the band comes in and they're just as cool as you could. I mean, just as cool as you'd want them to be brought a stack of CDs or and records that we liked and just kind of wanted to like talk about it. Not, not ones that we did just like, why do, you know, why is dark side of the moon perfect you know all these kinds of things and and we just talked album art for like probably 45 minutes dave made us popcorn at one point <laughs> we're just sitting there and then he's and then we went down to the studio and it's just me ryan and dave listening to the record and we're right up against the soundboard and you know he hits play and then he sits down and we kind of like we look i look back and dave is playing a guitar along to the to the songs i'm just i look at ryan i'm like how did we get here? I mean, this is like, <laughs> this is crazy. So yeah, that so no, after that project, we did start to get more major label stuff, but it, and it was great. I mean, the budgets were bigger and stuff like that. And, but honestly, it, it never compared to that excitement of getting that call. My brother's done uh, two or three Alice in Chains records. He's working on the new Jerry Cantrell. And I know if he was here, that would be his story because you know, Foo Fighters, it's interesting how these two bands from Seattle, we didn't even live in Seattle, but these two bands for us were just huge. And so somehow we were able to make it to them. And, uh, you know, it's just the weirdest thing by no fault of our own. But we had a, obviously had a lot of help with people talking about us, uh, which is great. But yeah, that would that would be it. Man, what an amazing experience. And, you know, beyond the coolness of it all, I also love how moments like those help to confirm your intuition and uh, there's sort of like the world saying you're on the right path so to speak and I guess as a follow-up question and in keeping with the theme of this podcast uh, I love shoehorning the theme of failure into these conversations but you know inevitably over the past two decades you've of course had some missteps or failures of some kind along the way uh could you share some examples of these failures? Not only, you know, it could be some client work, perhaps, but also uh, perhaps a, a product that you've done. For example, have there been any of your toys that you've released that maybe didn't go the way that you thought they would? Um, could you share any examples or learnings from that side of the equation? Yeah, for sure. There's failures all day long. I mean, the, you know, 
what what happens is with a studio like us, I think it's easy to go, oh, these guys just hit things out of the park all day, you know, every week. It's like whatever they, you know, whatever new they put out. But what you don't see are, you know, all the like kind of like sour client interactions. Maybe, you know, maybe just something didn't work, which luckily doesn't happen a lot. But there are, you know, there's plenty of things that you that the public doesn't see that we're working on that we're, you know, not super proud of and maybe didn't go the way that we wanted to, which is why we keep a healthy dose of invisible creature related things coming out because I'm always wanting to supplement kind of some of maybe the more mundane client stuff with with more of the fun stuff that uh, you know we get to release and failure can just look at like can can be like hey i've worked on this thing all day and it sucks like this thing you know it's not looking how i want it, it can be that it can also be hey we put out this product and it didn't sell so i guess we're learning you know that this type of thing doesn't do well you know, luckily we only kind of produce limited runs of our stuff because I don't want to have that issue. And I try to do pre-sales whenever I can. I think that's a smart way to do stuff nowadays. You know, one thing I will say about the failures as a small business in turn, well, let me just say almost glorified freelancer, you know, it's just two of us and I have, we have some help uh, occasionally, but when you fail, the, the the trickle down effect is not so heavy, you know. So a lot of times, what will happen is we'll go speak at an agency, and some of the you know people will come up and be like, "Man, we want to do toys too. How do we do that?" You know, and it's like, well, I don't have to ask anyone or get their permission or get their you know. What do you think of this design? You know, it's just like I do it and I produce it, and so. There is no middleman there. I don't have to get everyone's take on it. It's like, we're going to put this thing out into the world. Uh, if it bombs, it bombs. But the only person kind of feeling the ramification of that is myself or whatever. It, you know, it's not, which is one of the things that I love about keeping it small in terms of a studio is that, you know, I don't have to hire up if we get a big contract and then, you know, unfortunately let them go when I, you know, have when that contract is gone and there is something really special about staying nimble. I, I think a lot of people realize that during COVID I was thankful to be working on some long-term projects during COVID, but I think that that does have a lot to do with the, the fail subject in, in terms of trying to think a little bit leaner in maybe what, you know, what you're presenting. And again, this is just, this is my story. Obviously, there's a zillion different studios with all kinds of employees, and I get that. But when there's too many voices, I think, on certain things, it's just not going to happen the way that you might see us putting stuff out because we're just kind of, you know, putting out stuff that we love. There's a question that a lot of us ask, and it's simply what does success look like? And I think that so often we, and myself very much included here, that we can all easily fall into that trap of looking to our right and to our left and saying, you know, that's what success looks like. And it's what this person is doing or what that person has done or whatever. But I believe the real answer is that success lies in our own definition of success. It's up to each of us to create our own metrics for success. And when I look at Invisible Creature, when I look at Don and Ryan and the life that they've created, you know, I see two guys who have created their own world in the best possible way. They're balancing professional work with personal passions. 
They're blending Ryan's band, which, by the way, is called Demon Hunter. That's wildly successful. I mean, they have millions and millions of views on YouTube. They tour all the time whenever they want. They're blending all of that with this constant stream of limited edition toy runs and various designed objects that are all just so thoughtful and great. They've designed their lives to blend everything with everything else, family and work, personal passions and professional obligations. And as I think about all of this in the context of failure, that is one hell of a lesson because failure is definitionally not meeting a goal. But what I'm learning is that so often the goals that we set for ourselves were the wrong ones to begin with. So I know we're coming up on time here. So I'll just leave you with one last question, uh, Don. Um, How do you define success? I think success is you're going to be let down if you find success in the wrong places. And I think oftentimes outsiders see like, oh, well, they made it. That's success or whatever. But I mean, success is having a healthy childbirth. Uh, Success is like, you know, just um, getting that call from a new client, you know, those are like little successes, but, and you can also just say they're little moments, but again, it's like, man, I've got a healthy family. I can pay my mortgage. Like that is all I want to do. And in, you know, when you don't have those things, you, in the beginning, you do see success as something different. I think that that's okay because you're, you're, you're growing and learning and stuff like that. But Um, You don't want to put, you know, how many times do you see kind of the old, you know, older person kind of, oh, they put all their eggs into this one thing and they're left with nothing or whatever. You know, I don't, I just think you're going to be heavily disappointed if you put your success in anything material or some sort of milestone, you know, and I think it's okay and and great to look at these things and go, oh man, those are, that was awesome. And, And use those as building blocks. But Yeah. I mean, what do your neighbors and your friends and your family think of you? Like, how are those relationships, uh, that kind of stuff? So that's all to me pretty important. If you'd like to learn more about Invisible Creature, check out their website, invisiblecreature.com or follow them on Instagram at Invisible Creature. Also, be sure to pick up their new book called Face the Music, 20 Years of Album Art. You can pre-order it in the shop on their website. Fail Hard is sponsored by Adobe. Everything associated with this show is enabled by the Creative Cloud, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Thank you, Adobe. If you're still thirsty for more by design content, be sure to check out our website, americabydesigntv.com. There, you'll be able to find local listings of our television show, America by Design, as well as see extended episodes and behind-the-scenes footage. We're releasing new episodes of Fail Hard every Tuesday, so be sure to hit subscribe now to stay up to speed. We'll see you next Tuesday. That's the extent of my computer hood.